This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Matt Splain. I'm Rich Bradbury. As we shift our vocabulary from pandemic to endemic and frame our thinking around adapting to and living with COVID-19, MSP takes a look at what the world we're creating today is going to look like for future generations, especially for the kids and young adults whose lives will be very different from those of the generation before. This isn't going to be an episode about mask mandates and crackpot vaccine theories, is it, Matt? Hey, Richard. Uh, no, I mean, it's interesting watching a lot of the uh, the videos with parents arguing about uh, uh, what's best for their kids and not wanting them to be masked because, you know, it reduces their interaction in the classroom. Mm. Because we've seen with uh, fashion trends for that same generation, they were already adopting, you know, obviously hoodies and things like cycling masks before the, the pandemic. Yeah. So this is a generation that's quite happy to hide behind a mask and limit their exposure to other people and actually reveling uh, in the privacy and the anonymity it gives, you know, that sense of invisibility. Yeah. I guess you'd have to talk to a psychologist if you wanted to discuss the links between protecting your physical privacy uh, while having an always accessible digital persona. But no, that isn't what I wanted to talk about today. Well, that's good uh, because I, I don't think you're really that qualified. Well, if I worried uh, what I was qualified to do, I probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. But, um, you know, having said that, I, I, I work from home, so I rarely get out of bed in the morning anyway. Uh, I'm only out of bed to record this because I sound too breathy and nasal if I'm lying down. Uh -huh. uh, you know, we, we did a couple of shows closer to the start of the pandemic, uh, I guess, kind of mid last year, uh, even though time has very little meaning for anyone anymore yesterday today next week you know, mm, it's all mm. pretty much the same but when we did those shows we looked at what i was calling at the time generation c or yeah. generation covid as it's become more popularly known and we've seen this run of generations whether it's uh, baby boomers gen x gen y gen z and of course now we're looking at gen alpha as well so the impacts of COVID. Of course, it's going to be felt by all of us, but those younger generations, uh, Gen Z and uh, all of Gen Alpha, are likely to be most shaped by the events of the last two years. And even within that Gen Alpha group, we may be looking at distinct generational differences between those born before and after the pandemic. So when we talk about Gen C, we, we aren't talking about a literal generation as in A, B or C. No, not that alpha, beta and whatever C is. You know, I'm not sure if we've had uh, figurative generations before. Obviously, mm. the baby boomers, the post-1945 generation, was the first generation we thought about in that youth culture sense. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned when we did, were doing the shows last year, perhaps these rather arbitrary 15-year generation parameters are becoming less relevant. I think I made the point that someone in the upper age limits of the millennial group uh, has more in common with uh, Gen Xers like me and you mm. who experience dial-up internet 
than millennials in their mid-20s who barely remember a world before smartphones. Yeah. So when I say Gen C and figurative generations, I'm looking at more of a catch-all term for everyone who's shared this experience. Now, we've seen other countries reopen. Economic life is, is resuming. Nightlife and entertainment sectors are, are bouncing back. Yes, but um, some have, but things aren't going back to the way that they were before. And yeah. I don't mean that just in terms of social distancing and limitations on capacity, because those are really just kind of technical and logistical issues. Mm. People's expectations seem to have changed as well, at least in some developed nations. So I don't think we should have these expectations that things are going to go back to the way they were. If you look at the US as an example, many businesses in that minimum wage sector are struggling to hire staff. Yeah. The relatively generous federal benefits that were offered for the first year of the pandemic made people very aware that often they were working for next to nothing mm -hmm. and that they do deserve something better. Right. In the same way, you know, after a couple of decades of retreat, we're seeing an expansion of union activity again in many countries as workers try to regain wage levels and working conditions that have eroded during that period. And a number of economists uh, are, are have been commenting, have been looking at this and commenting that the 21st century has seen a reversal of much of the economic gains that households experienced in that post-war, that, that period since 1945. Is this where we come back to automation again? Well, partly. I'm not going to dwell on this because, you know, we talk about automation and the future of work so often, and we've talked about it so much over the past 12 months. We've seen an acceleration in the deployment of technology. That's something that uh, we've talked about a great deal from mm -hmm. automated online retail through to those ever-popular ultraviolet sanitation robots. I don't know why I'm obsessed with those. <laughs> I just love this idea of machines rolling around, you know, with blue light laser beams. But anyway, Zapping everything. Zapping everything, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. a fantastic image. But the deployment of those technologies has fallen most heavily on people under 30 who have uh, disproportionately felt the brunt of job cuts and reductions in working hours across the pandemic. And they're the ones who are most likely to be working low-paid, casual or part-time jobs in sectors like hospitality, tourism, entertainment. So they experience the brunt of those layoffs, the re redundancies and reductions in hours on the premise of, you know, last in, first out. Right. I suppose the theory is that they'll have plenty of time to make it back. Well, that kind of presumes that they will be able to go on to get those better paid jobs. Um, at the same time, societies are storing up costs that they're expecting these generations to pay for. Mm. Uh, the health costs associated with aging populations, for one, the costs of tackling climate change. Uh, a lot of countries have borrowed very heavily to deal with sharp falls in uh, GDP that their economies have uh, experienced during the pandemic that money will have to be paid back as well. And the wealthiest generation of those post-war years, the baby boomers, has already reached or is you know, about to reach retirement age. I mean, hell, I'm about to reach retirement age. I mean, <laughs> Gen X. Uh, again, you know, it's not really a focus of 
today's episode, but uh, it is maybe something that we'll come back to. We're seeing a revival of many of the more left-wing policy ideals that have been out of favor for the last couple of decades, more calls for things like universal basic income policies. And again, a lot of this is driven by younger generations that are disillusioned with or disdainful of the idea that the current economic structures are going to bring them any kind of economic betterment. So the question we should really be asking is, will younger generations consider it worthwhile to work to pay those things back? Because essentially, in their eyes anyway, they're working to solve problems that were created by previous generations. Work is one issue. Uh, Okay, but what about education? You know, we hear the success stories of online and distance learning, but how prepared will this generation of school kids be uh, for, you know, the challenges of the future? Well, just touching on that a little bit, because it has implications for the economy as well as factors like mental health. On last week's show, we talked about genetic enhancement Mm. and implants that could see us divided into ordinary and extraordinary people. But in a sense, COVID is already doing that. So kids across the world have been out of school for most of the last two years. Their online and homeschooling experiences have been vastly different, not just from country to country, but from region to region and city to city within countries. And in many countries, those with access to private education have been a lot less disrupted. They're the ones who are most likely to have had a full school day of online lessons, you know, five days a week. Mm. In state education sectors across the world, that experience has been a lot more variable. And income is also an issue here as well, because to access distance learning, you need the tools to do so. You need computers, you need stable and fast internet connections, even things that uh, most of us take for granted, like a table and a chair and the space that you need so that you can actually engage with those tutors and with those lessons. Which disproportionately impacts families with fewer financial resources. Yeah, and often you find that those families are located within inner cities, often in deprived areas, and there's often a disproportionate impact on minority ethnic groups. So you couple that with the economic impacts of the pandemic on families as well. Those impacts may force some kids out into the workplace before they've had the chance to catch up on this part of the education that they've missed. You know, we love to use terms like productive members of society, Mm. but the pandemic may have derailed that uh, educative production process for many thousands or even millions of kids. And that's likely to inflict long-term costs associated with a generation of underskilled workers, especially as we move in the opposite direction. We're increasingly moving into a technology-driven world where there are fewer opportunities for unskilled and low-skilled workers, Mm. whereas we should be looking towards models that provide lifelong learning with frequent upskilling to react to these frequent uh, and often technology-fueled shocks and changes. Instead, we're discharging a generation of kids who may lack many of the basic skills they're going to need to compete and adapt to those needs in the future. You're usually Mr. Progress uh, with the view that it could all be terrible, but that technology will miraculously save us all. 
Well, you know, we can see the direction this is heading. It's not something that's irrevocable, but to change it does require action. Uh, Another term that I've learned recently is economic scarring. So the danger would be that unanticipated economic shocks like this one cause lasting or semi-permanent damage, especially as many economies are still recovering from the shocks of the recessions of 2008 and the mid-2010s. So if you look at a generation of undereducated and under-resourced workers, if you combine that with stagnant wages and high levels of national debt, even if economies bounce back and start to grow again, for some countries, those scars may take longer than our lifetimes to heal. And, you know, this is uh, something that we'll get to after the break. We're already in a situation where we're seeing these enormous societal divisions usually framed in the polarizing terms of conservatives and progressives. But we're increasingly seeing these become generational divides as well. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, We're talking about Generation C on MSP today and how the events of the last couple of years may shape our future and those of generations to come. You're listening to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Before Friday materializes, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Uh, Just before the break, uh, you mentioned uh, generational divisions. Do you mean this... um, in an attitudinal or a, a behavioral sense, you know, for example, in terms of differences between generations that have different comfort levels with uh, digital technology? Well, there's certainly an element of that, but that really plays to the kind of lazy stereotypes that I generally make. Um, you know, I, I'm very comfortable with most aspects of digital technology, for example, um, as I know you are. Mm. And I'm in an age group that most people under the age of 20 would consider to be really old. (laughs) So what we're starting to see more and more is a, a physical segregation of the generations. You know, we used to talk about the hollowing out of small towns and cities as young people move to larger metropolitan areas to explore economic or social choices. That trend from rural to urban, of course, is still ongoing across the world. And interestingly, and I think this is something that we should do on a show in the future, there have been theories or ideas floated recently that by increasing the size of our cities uh, and increasing the population density, it may actually be a way to help us tackle climate change. Mm. Now, there are multiple reasons for that, and there's still a lot of discussion of the merits of the idea. But an oversimplified way of thinking about it is to think about cities as production engines for society. And by making those production engines larger, you get to enjoy economies of scale. Without going too much into your uh, scale engine analogy, uh, this process of urbanization isn't anything new, is it? It's something that's been seen and studied for decades. No, it isn't. But every subsequent societal change also has an impact on that pre-existing trend. People are living longer lives. So in those towns and cities that are hollowed out by a migration of the young, you aren't seeing the same level of churn in the population because 
to be blunt, you know, people are dying much older. So the housing stock is still occupied, property prices are maintained, which can actually increase the attractiveness to the younger people in the the area uh, to move away from that place. So you couple that with a trend for middle-aged and late middle-aged urban dwellers who want to sell up in the city. Uh, and often they have youngish children in tow and they have this romantic notion that the countryside is some kind of quiet idyll to uh, bring a family up in, mm. which, you know, a few months of farm animals and farm machinery starting work at dawn uh, quickly disabuses them of. <laughs> Doesn't this run counter to some of the things that we've been talking about over the last few months? So one of the focuses of your work from home shows is that more flexible employment policies could help to reverse this age-related talent drain. For sure. Um you know, when we talk about technology, however complicated things look, the discussion is usually actually quite simple. Uh, for example, you know, what will the new operating system updates for your mobile device do? Well, that's simple to answer. The Boston dynamic robot that does parkour, well, actually, that, again, is quite a simple process. People are far more complicated. Mm. What we've seen with the Zoomtown phenomenon so far, you know, this idea of people moving out of cities and uh, becoming nomadic workers somewhere else, is that in the short term, it can actually increase the flight of young and single people because the local housing stock isn't able to adapt fast enough. Right. Okay. Oh, so that influx of new residents is pushing prices up, which then prices younger residents out of the area. Yeah, because as we mentioned before, those younger people tend to be in lower paying jobs. So their only solution, other than living out of their car, is to migrate towards those larger towns and cities where there are more opportunities for them. And those new immigrants from Mega City One often find that the infrastructure they took for granted in the city simply isn't there. You know, for example, Malaysia intends to switch off its 3G networks at the end of this year. Mm. Where my mum lives in the UK, there's no 3G, let alone anything faster. And mm. of course, when you start moving out of those uh, metropolitan areas, internet connection speeds tend to be nothing like they are in the cities. Right. But more than that, it's fueling this intergenerational divide because these generations are now living essentially segregated lives because they are physically in different places. So you aren't seeing those intergenerational connections to the same degree. Uh, this part of uh, the, the, the show I, I took from a fascinating piece uh, in The New Scientist by Bobby Duffy, and we'll put the link to that article and more information about the intergenerational divides in the show notes. Great. Uh, but how profound then are these effects likely to be, Matt? Well, again, we don't know because this is unprecedented, um, but we do see it a lot in the political conflicts that we witness on our TV and device screens that move away from the center ground. But there is a technology point here too. You know, we're seeing the adoption of smart city technologies. Uh, we're seeing moves to use high technology tools to make cities more livable. Mm. 5G networks are one aspect of that movement. Uh, use of artificial intelligence and automated services is another. Uh, coordinated transport networks, sharing economy features. So we don't know how long it will take for those technologies to make it to those smaller towns and villages. Uh, again, uh, 
my mum was recently ill. So I asked her if there were any food delivery services that she could use to bike in her meals. Mm. And the best that she can do is to ask my nephew to go and pick up a, a takeaway for her. Now, like many people, uh, I've survived on food delivery apps for the last two years. Yeah. So even that relatively small difference kind of blew me away because I can't imagine not being able to pick up my phone and order those things. Mm, mm. So my day-to-day -day reality is already very different to, to hers because, as I said, I can pick up my phone and get all kinds of things delivered to me within an hour or two. I had that same issue uh, earlier this year. Um, but we, we have to then look at the, the, the wider picture of what the amplifier effect of those differences you know, could be. Well, we're back to that discussion we had last week about the divide between ordinary and extraordinary people. We talk about people being left behind because breakthroughs and advances, you know, from technology to health are not distributed equally. They're not available to everyone. Mm. When you see those breakthroughs largely being available to the young simply because that infrastructure is being built where they live, uh, you then start to talk about older generations being excluded from those opportunities, which will probably lead to alienation. Mm. Uh, I've used this anecdote before, but um, you know, it's a, a friend who witnessed an old man struggling to use a QR code to get into a supermarket early on in the pandemic and eventually just giving up and walking away because there was no one to help him. And he didn't want the embarrassment of asking for help. Right. So that man was effect effectively shut out by technology that was actually designed to protect people. Mm -hmm. And often these technologies aren't hard to use. But when you have one section of society that they've become ubiquitous for and another that's excluded from them based on geography, those technologies then start to seem much more alien and much more remote as do the people who use them. And that helps then to drive that social division. I mean, this, this picture you're painting sounds like a pretty bleak one, Matt. Well, it always sounds bleak when you're laying them out in scenarios like this, but it doesn't have to be like that. You know, Generation C isn't doomed to some kind of terrible future, but it will probably require a lot of public policy and government intervention to make sure that we don't. Uh, governments are often quite hands-off when it comes to technology, which is understandable. You know, it's often quite complex and usually expensive, mm. and neither of those things tend to be vote-winning uh, policy combinations. So governments will often outsource that side of things to the market. Uh, a good example is broadband and mobile communications. It's easier for governments to auction spectrum licenses and leave it to private companies to build telecoms infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting that we've seen governments in countries like the UK and US intervening to ban uh, Chinese engineering firms like Huawei from uh, participating in 5G infrastructure projects. But those same governments haven't prioritized the creation of companies with that engineering expertise within their own countries, right. or even showed much interest in planning those networks other than to greenlight the plans of the telcos bidding for them. Is there more of an understanding now amongst policymakers that technology uh, isn't neutral? Well, I mean, it's true to say, I think, that governments in general have been slow to pick up on that. 
But uh, the only way that you can have smart city developments, for example, that benefit everyone is for them to be planned and probably paid for with public funds, especially if you want to expand those to areas with lower population densities. Yeah. So again, you know, we've come round uh, full circle to those advocates for larger and more densely populated cities. Mm. But there are signs that governments are heading in the right direction. As Bobby Duffy points out in uh, his New Scientist piece, some countries are setting up ministries specifically to deal with the future. And that is a very positive step. Hopefully that means that someone is looking at that top-down planning with a less rigid mindset. And you think that will enable us to move away from the idea of uh, top-down master plans with just, I don't know, a a bunch of boxes to tick? Well, I do hope so, you know, especially as we're living in a world where new technology can quickly make those master plans irrelevant. You know, in the business sphere, we talk about pivoting and dynamism and flexibility, Mm. but that's something that we need in public office as well. You know, we've talked about this uh, impending divide between small and big towns, between Gen Z and Gen Alpha and the Xs and the baby boomers, maybe with the millennials hovering somewhere in between. But we're starting to see a more positive divide, I think, between government and local level policies. It's often public officials at the local level that are most adept at using new technologies to benefit their constituents whether it's Twitter hotlines to get potholes fixed uh, or using video apps, not just for broadcasting policy, but for getting honest feedback from the public. Mm. At the local level, at least, policymakers seem to understand that they need to be more visible, more available and more flexible. And that to find the solutions that will benefit Generation C, they need to be more creative, more adaptable, and more innovative. So hopefully those same attitudes will eventually be passed up the chain and we'll start to see it with national policymakers too. Wonderful. Thanks very much for that, Matt. Thanks, Richard. Now, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. And of course, if you missed any part of this podcast, don't forget you can download download it and listen back to it at your leisure, wherever you normally download it from. I do recommend using the BFM app, though. It's available at the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.